Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 46. Would you rather fight a goose or Floyd Mayweather? Hello, Big Chillians, and welcome back to The Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Sam and Eddie. So we've got a lot of sports talk. So what better way to start a sports podcast than with non-sports talk? There was a recent YouGov America uh, poll that just came out. Have you either of you heard about this? It it caught a lot of traction on social media. No, I've not been I've not been monitoring the YouGov polls. No. Okay. So this one was. They polled Americans in who they think they could beat in a fight animal-wise. So, Sam, Eddie, as our welcome to the episode, I want you to tell me as we go down this list whether you could defeat this animal. Assuming it's fully grown, right? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Okay. And I will give the percentage of what other Americans said. First one. A full-sized rat. Yes. Yes. Okay. 72% of Americans thought they could defeat a rat. (laughs) Not a good start for America. (laughs) Quite a few people don't think they can defeat a rat. I mean, rats can be vicious. And like, if you're, if you don't, if you're scared of rats, like rats can be vicious creatures and rats can get a lot bigger than you think they can get. So. Oh yeah, they can. That is like fighting like (laughs) a cat, but that's like pretty vicious. It's. I can get it. Okay, Eddie. I'd be interesting. You say it because next one is a house cat. Well, yeah, because they're not vicious for the most part. I just so far we're just talking. I'm just punting a couple of things away. (laughs) You can't underestimate the ability just to punt. Like that is what's going to (laughs) defeat animals like closer to the ground than you are. Is the punt? Okay. All right. Well, you're with 69 percent of Americans who think they could defeat a house cat. Now we're starting to drop a little bit. How about a goose, full-size goose, known to be mean? Yeah, Yeah, people always get scared of them. I'd still, I'm still backing myself. If I know that I'm in a, because here's the thing is, I'm being put in a situation where I know this is a fight, right? Because I think part of the reason why a goose is going to like bite you and break people's arms, right? Which is the thing they're always famous for doing, supposedly, is that you don't (laughs) think you could just grab the goose and snap its neck. But I'm, oh no, that's swans that break arms, isn't it? Yeah, but, swans. But, but you know what, if I knew that this was a me or it scenario and it's a fight to the death, then I'm confident. Yeah. Is this a fixed scenario? Like, do you put the goose in the ring with you or do you just name the place and time and get like a, a sucker? I would say it? this is more of a natural environment. Like maybe you're out in the fields and all of a sudden this goose just has a death wish on you. But you know it. Because it's not well, as you if... know, once it starts attacking you, <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. and no one's judging you for killing a goose. No, 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 it's either you or the goose. I think a goose is a goose is a pretty tough one, but yeah, I'd still fancy myself just one kick and it's you can <laughs> okay. really get it. 61% of Americans think they could defeat a goose. Next one, a medium sized dog. It's not the size of the dog that would worry me. More. I want to know what like type of dog it is, but <laughs> like a Pomeranian. 
<laughs> well, there are dogs that are more aggressive than others, right? So they, yeah. regardless of size, there are big dogs that I would still feel more comfortable in being able to handle versus there's some small little dogs I'd be more terrified by. So we can lump this together. There is a medium-sized dog and a large-sized dog category. So let's just say dogs in general. You pick the most vicious one, you think. If I'm going most vicious at the size, I'm saying no to both, probably. So you think a pit bull would, would defeat you? Probably. I'm, I'm put, it's a fight I don't want to be in. I'll put it that way. <laughs> so far, I think I'm going to be pretty unscathed through the animals you've gone through. Whereas okay. if it's me versus a very angry pit bull, I know it's biting me. So yeah, at this I love point, the it's, idea it's, of this being a royal rumble, you know, like yeah. you defeat always, one of them, and then you've got the countdown clock, and then ten <laughs> seconds later, you just see this goose bombing it down to the <laughs> ring. <laughs> you have ten minutes to regroup and and con- like control yourself. <laughs> okay, so large dog is twenty three percent of Americans think they could defeat it. So now you are in the majority, Eddie, where you think. Most Americans cannot defeat a dog. Now we get into some good ones. Well, I'm specifically saying I can't, right? Because most Americans, I'd be able, I would have maybe stopped it at rat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm taking my incredible fighting abilities. Okay. A chimpanzee. Oh no way! They rip your face off. Like, <laughs> no, like absolutely no chance. Like only if you got like a surprise hit on it. The dogs, you could talk me, there could be a monetary stake at which I get into the ring with almost any type of dog and I give myself a chance. A chimp, it's, I'm not even considering it. Can you imagine it going the other way? Like the dog's like, how much do you want to get in the ring with that human? <laughs> I think I say the chimp. The chimp's like, I will pay $500 to fight Eddie in the ring. <laughs> Sam, any chance? Do you have any special skills against the chimp? No, zero. Like Eddie said, these things that just go absolutely feral on you. The second they get you like on the ground or something, you are getting ripped to shreds. Like it's all over. So 17% of Americans still think they could defeat a chimpanzee. (laughs) They are idiots. (laughs) They are. Like, I mean, I don't see what your advantage is over a chimp. It's stronger than you. It's definitely more vicious. It's got teeth that you don't have uh, it, it has absolutely every it's more agile and mobile like a uh, chimp has an advantage in every category like the only now, category you might have is just overall size and reach but with the speed it's going to close on you that doesn't matter you can insult it and it can't insult you back i guess maybe if you could poke it in the eye or something and injure it it would run away <laughs> wow. maybe wow if i could this- well that would I mean, if you're gambling on like getting a small area of the chimpanzee, yeah. that's like when like, people tell you, like when a great white attacks you, if you're, if you're, if your self-defense is relying on your ability to poke something very hard in the eye, it's, it's not looking good. <laughs> so I'll do this last one. Cause I, th- I think it's just strange. And then I'll just run through the last six and see if there's any, you think you could defeat. So the next one is a King Cobra snake. Only 15% of Americans think they could defeat a king cobra snake. I'd go cobra over chimp easily. I'd right? probably even I think go, so as well. I'd probably even go cobra over 
a big dog. But they are fast. Like the cobra gets a strike on you, you got. A yeah, but here's the other thing: is I'm, it's just my hands we're using. I'm not saying I get a gun, but like, can I pick? No, up just stick? hands. Yep, I that was that was stick. part of it. Just your hands. I mean, I'm getting bitten oh. again, but I feel like, <laughs> but I feel like I could do it. I think if you could get it to miss on the first attempt, then you've gained the upper hand because then you can kind of maybe give it a stomp or something. But if it strikes you first, well, also you've got you, you've got a very quick window to then be able to defeat it and get to a hospital. Yeah, I mean, is there a doctor at hand with the anti-venom? <laughs> no, he's at the hospital just sitting oh, there. Okay. <laughs> so, I can, so I'm not, not even, this isn't doctor. like a, a prepared fight. Okay, great. Um, I would still, I would, I'm going Cobra over Chimp. Not even, not thinking twice. I, I think I'm losing to both. I just think the Cobra's got the quickness. It first strikes, you're probably out. You're only going to get yeah. worse from that first strike. Wow. You got to strike first. So from there, nothing is greater than 14% that Americans think they could defeat. They are in order from most likely to least likely kangaroo, wolf, crocodile, gorilla, elephant, lion, and grizzly bear. What percentage of people think they can beat a gorilla? Or an 8% think they could beat a gorilla. How many could beat an elephant? Eight percent could beat an elephant. I'd what give myself, doing? Sam. I'd give myself a better chance against an elephant than I would against a gorilla. That's that's insane. Like there is 8%, nothing you're doing to an elephant. Eight uh, percent against the lion and six percent against a grizzly bear. <laughs> Those that six percent are the six percent of Americans who never saw the movie Revenant. <laughs> well, also you got to assume that those six percent they've just said they could beat everything. Like if if it'd be weird if you're like I could I could beat a grizzly bear, not a gorilla. Like these these people are making weird assessments of what to what they think their particular advantages are. Or they've got up against one in the past. Also and true. They've been like, I mean, there was that video that went viral this weekend, right? Of that mother just pushing that bear. She won. yeah, that was kind of crazy. I guess she won. So, but that wasn't a grizzly. She's one of the six. I think that was a brown bear. Well, she's working her way up. <laughs> <laughs> Grizzly's coming she said, next week. She said maybe. <laughs> she yeah. said there's maybe. Just, there's just a line of all the other animals that she's beaten up to the brown bear. <laughs> just out of interest, what was the reason for this survey? Um, it they're just random surveys just to kind of see what people think. But the original part of it was what animal would win in a fight, like in a series of head-to-head matches, and then they progressed then said okay what if you're facing the animal so out of the animals out of any animal you can think of this will be the last question what animal do you think people chose as the most successful bout like animal fighter i'd go gorilla gorilla was at 64 percent, just cracked the top 10 there just because it's Infamous. Grizzly bear was number three at 73% of victories. Two That's animals cool. above it. I mean, I'm guessing maybe an elephant is high, but it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be as high as it is. An elephant is number one at 74%. People are, people are over, 
they're putting too much weight on on weight you know like they <laughs> the, the elephant now if it gets a clean charge on you and i know elephants are very very quick but there's a scenario in which like if we're, if we're saying you can rely on the eye poke if you could get on the back of the elephant how are you going to get out of the back of an elephant? <laughs> I can imagine Eddie doing some sort of like Lord of the Rings style thing where he just like climbs up the elephant. I mean, that would be my plan. I don't have a plan for a gorilla. Put it this way. I've got a plan for an elephant. I don't have a plan for a gorilla. Tied with the, rhino- with the rhinoceros at 74% of victories. Same plan for the rhino. What's that? Get on the back. To hop on back of <laughs> And then and to put, tame it and I'm have it become because I've been and then, you use, the and then you throw. use that to beat the gorilla. <laughs> that's the that's the plan. Uh, yeah, so quite quite the interesting poll. I just think to me it's mind blowing that almost ten percent of Americans think they could beat a gorilla, an elephant, a lion, or a grizzly bear, or a crocodile. Yeah, the crocodile is a weird one as well. Yeah. I'd give myself a better chance against a crocodile, not in the water. Right? I'm assuming Maybe. I'm not in the water. I'm still not loving my chances, but I'm. I'd rather fight a crocodile than a bear. Yeah. I mean, come on, that revenant scene. That's also, horrifying. I guess <laughs> we can, as a natural transition into some of the sport of the week, I would watch, rather watch any of those fights than the Mayweather. <laughs> Paul Logan Paul fight, which I did not watch live, but I watched the replay of this morning, and uh, I'm glad I did not pay the fifty dollars to watch that. I heard that the um, the streaming site basically went down as well, so the um, uh, it sounds like a lot of people are pretty pissed at the yeah, capabilities the, of the streaming yeah. service. Well, the servers got it. bored. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm annoyed at everyone saying that he went the distance with Mayweather. It was an eight-round fight. That isn't. That's their distance. That's their own well, thing. I, I'd still give him a little thing. credit. No, I'm not saying don't. There's I, a couple of things that he came out of like pretty well, but fundamentally, it's not the distance. The the the, re, the, the only reason I lose all respect for him is that right off the bat in round one when he just started wailing and he just looked like someone who'd never boxed before where he's just like swinging both arms and it just looks like a toddler getting in a fight. That's actually the thing that made me lose respect for him. But going the eight rounds, he took a couple punches pretty well. So he did that bit, but my issue was it definitely looked like to me that Mayweather could have knocked him out. I feel as if every round Mayweather would go at him, get a few nice shots into him, and then just step back and be like, that's enough for this round. You know, we're just trying to entertain. I'm not super trying to win. It, it, if watching some of those like round three, four, and five, the way he was so easily able to just get at his jaw and get solid punches on him, I think if he really wanted to push the issue and knock him down, Maybe not knock him out, but knock him to the ground. He easily could have by like the fifth round. Maybe. And I'm sure there was some talk in there about let's pull this eight. Let's make this entertaining. And that, well, that's to the, me, you lose all respect for Mayweather. But that's the thing is that's where they failed. Because in order for that to fight be to be truly entertaining, one of them had to knock the other down. 
to just basically spar, which is what they did for eight rounds, it it's, was not entertaining to watch. Whereas some of the other fights earlier on the card, like Ochocinco getting knocked down, that's at least entertaining. It would have been much better. To me, I would have rather talked about the fight had Mayweather knocked him out in round one versus just that, which is like, well, you just watch two people spar for, for eight rounds. Yeah. I think that was that stat that Paul threw something like 74 jabs and seven of them landed in eight rounds. Yeah, he landed around, I think it was something around 14% of his punches, something like that. Really, really I mean, low. Like you say, though, he, he did show to have a bit of a chin, though. He did take a couple of punches and didn't seem to be rattled or anything like that. He was that. also I mean, fighting a midget. So, Mike, there's there's an <laughs> element here, right? He had a, he had a 45-pound weight advantage, something like that, 40-pound weight advantage. So you shouldn't really get knocked out. I mean, but again, I mean, watching that fight, I question if Mayweather was 100% throwing his punches and 100% pushing the issue to land more punches. He definitely wasn't pushing the issue to land everything. Or did Mayweather get out there? Because he spoke about it afterwards where he said that was the first time he'd fought and felt old. Did he get in that ring thinking it was going to be cruise control and then realize... I don't really have the ability here to do much. Like I can do the Mayweather mm. stuff. I can dodge some punches. I can occasionally land something. But he never was a knockout puncher anyway, especially with his hand problems, right? So maybe he just realized sort of during that fight, I can win this. Like I'm going to be, this is going to be another May, typical Floyd Mayweather performance where if they did, had had judges, he clearly would have won. Like he maybe yep. lost one round, maybe. But fundamentally... He would have won it easily, but maybe he figured out he wasn't actually going to be able to knock him out. From watching it, I I felt like it was just a slightly fixed situation. And I'll, I'll tell you, we mentioned a few episodes ago, Ricky Hatton. He also did not. He was not entertained by the fight. His quote was, my personal opinion that was absolute shit for boxing. <laughs> so he was not happy about it. It's definitely not good for boxing. Anyone who thinks it's good, like it's not for, and it must be depressing for a lot of boxers out there who are genuinely talented and who are having their fights overshadowed by a YouTuber and a 45-year-old. That That's got to be tough for them. Yeah, you kind of felt like the money was kind of completely talking in this like uh I, I saw that tweet where it's like it's crazy to think that this guy uh a youtuber is now over one in his boxing career and has made 20 million from an exhibition against an old guy and like you say you've got these people that are aspiring supposedly i think that you had there has to be a great deg- degree of skepticism as to how much money they are actually making out of these because for either one of them any amount of money is interesting for what they would have had to probably have done. Maybe not for Logan Paul, but for Mayweather, he probably did basically no prep for this. So even if you got a million dollars, that was probably the easiest million dollars he ever made. But I think you have to assume, particularly with Mayweather involved, he's going to be inflating the numbers that he's making. So if he's saying he's making 20 million, he's probably making five 
But it does kind of lend to your, I remember you saying this months ago about whether you could just like, because of the like size advantage or reach advantage against like an old Mayweather or something, could you survive some rounds? And oh, I think, I, think that, I would have beaten him. I think that fight actually gives no, some no, no. credibility. You're insane. No, it You're could insane if you think you beat Mayweather. No, no, no. No, I look. think if I trained for a while, I'm not saying if I hop in a ring with him right now. Yeah, Logan Paul's done what, 18 months worth of solid boxing training got in a fight with Mayweather and went eight rounds. Give me six months of training. No. Are you going to fight against a gorilla to start things off? And (laughs) (laughs) No, he's going to start with a goose. (laughs) (laughs) Six months. You're insane. I bet you 8% of America would agree with me. (laughs) Yeah, the 8% of America that you said was insane 20 minutes ago. But Frank, I mean, there is a small... So even if your percentage of thinking this was zero, it's got up to like 0.5 now, surely, because you've just seen a YouTuber with no boxing experience survive eight rounds with Mayweather. Like, I know you think... He doesn't not have boxing experience. He has almost two years of full-time training. You got to remember, he's rich enough that he's getting round-the-clock, extremely good training. It's not like he's walking into his local boxing gym and talking to some guy who had two professional fights in his life. I mean, he's paying top-end trainers to to work with him for almost. He still two lost years to now. KSI, though. I I understand. Like, that. We have to we have to set the standard here. And I I watched the punches he threw in the first round, and I would be embarrassed by myself if I was throwing those punches. If he has been, I guess the better question is, Eddie, could you beat Logan Paul? I'd be more confident I could beat Mayweather than Logan Paul. Hey, Logan Paul's got the ability, at least, and the frame to hit a well, it's, heavy blow. You know, he's my height, so I don't have a size advantage in that way. So if I train, I'm not sure I necessarily would have too much of a punching advantage in terms of power behind it. But, I mean, I know I could definitely throw a better punch than he threw in that first round. But I would give myself a much better chance of just knocking out Mayweather than I would have knocking him out. Would you give him a show, Eddie? You know, would you do the kind of shuffle and the taunts? To Mayweather? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I probably would start by just having some of his domestic assault victims sitting in my (laughs) VIP section and try and get him riled up that way. Maybe throw punches at the wrong person. You're crazy. There's... You have no chance. But the thing is, Frank, like, it's gone... I'm not saying it's gone from, like... Me, because I thought it was ridiculous as well. I'm not saying it's gone from like that to me thinking that Eddie's got a real shot now. I'm just saying that the credibility of that argument has gone up a couple of percent because of no. what we just saw. See, here, here's your major issue, Sam. Here's the overarching issue with this whole argument. You giving him any sort of support for this makes his Paul Collingwood argument seem more reasonable. No, My Paul Collingwood argument is reasonable. Like, I've just seen a YouTuber come from nothing to going eight rounds with Mayweather. Like, that has but happened. But you're, you're just inflating his ego enough that he's now thinks... <laughs> no, with, no, 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 no. What was it? Six no, 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 months no, no. of These training, are... he could outdo Paul Collingwood. No. I said he has more credibility with the boxing. I have been the spearhead against the cricket Wait, one. <laughs> with a sport that he's never, ever done. At least he yes, played because cricket. because there's a guy that's <laughs> just done it, right? Like, that's the thing here. Like, it's happened. It's just happened. And, like, 
I was going to say a nobody then, but that would have been unfair and idiot. Like, like... <laughs> now, I guess there wasn't too much drama in the boxing, but there was a lot of drama in a sport where you maybe wouldn't have expected it this weekend, and that was in the golf, where John Rahm held a seemingly insurmountable lead after finishing his third round at the Memorial Tournament only to be informed as he walked off the 18th green that he had tested positive for COVID and that he would not be allowed to continue in the tournament and had to withdraw immediately, which then brought basically the rest of the field back in with a chance and ended with Patrick Kentley and Colin Morikawa having a playoff, which Patrick Kentley eventually won. Well, uh, he didn't really win the playoff. He just looked like he wanted to lose the least <laughs> because that 18th hole and then the playoff hole was not the best golf I've seen out of those two. No, particularly the playoff hole, the 18th hole. They both kind of recovered from difficult spots, at least like the Morikawa chip on the 18th out of the bunker was really good. But yeah, the Very 18th nice. hole itself was the, the playoff hole itself was a bit of a bit of a damn squid. But yeah, what did you think about the whole incident with John Rahm, how it was handled? Just a quick thing from me. Does he get any sort of, with COVID protocols and things like that, is there any sort of like prize money insurance compensation level that he gets so, for that? So supposedly, supposedly he gets a stipend to cover the help cover the costs of the 10-day quarantine that he's going to be required to do. And for lost prize money but obviously that stipend is in no way going to approach the 1.6 million dollars that he would have won had he been able to play his fourth round so i doubt it's much consolation i mean besides the actual issues with him having to drop out i really don't like the fact that they went and told him as he was walking off the 18th in front of all the fans, in front of all the media coverage, it made me feel really bad for Rom at that point. Like he has to go in to the, whatever it is, the little booth to sign his scorecard and hand in his scorecard. Why couldn't they have waited till he stepped in, in a private situation and pulled him aside and told him, right? So I, I kind of agree with you, but the reason they couldn't have done that is because they now know that he has COVID. And they now know, then they're going to allow him to step into an enclosed space to hand in a scorecard that no longer matters. So fundamentally, the only... That is a good point. The only sensible approach was to... because And also, they only found out his second positive test only came in while he was playing the 18th hole. So that was as soon okay. as they could have got to him on the timing. It's not as if they knew and allowed him to play six extra holes. So it sucks. And it was obviously... It looked mishandled, but when you really think about it, they kind of had to tell him before he had the chance to interact with anybody else. Maybe then you just go up and tell his caddy to like, hey, can you have him pull to the side and not go anywhere? Like, it, there's I mean, still a, a little, it, it could have been done a little better than that. Like, I just feel really bad because there was cameras just swarming him as it was, like, you can hear the whole interaction and like, it's an uncomfortable spot for him to be on, to be on national TV with that. I mean, he handled it well 
imagine he didn't handle it well. It would have looked poorly what on him. If, what if we just attacked people? If he just tried to kill a gorilla. (laughs) Also, you have to, there has to be some more context added, right? Which is that he was told on Monday that he had come into contact with someone who had tested positive for COVID-19. And he was then given the option of dropping out of the tournament or continuing, in which case, if he continued, he had to be tested on a daily basis. So he would have known, that's the reason why, even if you told his caddy, like, hey, uh, John, we can't go back. We can't go hand in this scorecard. We've got to go. We've got to go to this other place we would never go to when we finish a round. Unless he's an absolute moron. He's like, oh, where are we going? Is this a surprise? <laughs> he's going to figure out why. And it's going to be just as devastating to him in that moment. So, and then. But at people, least it's more private, is what I'm saying. Yeah, but no. it wouldn't have been. It wouldn't have been. It wouldn't and have people been. would have immediately, everyone would have figured out in the same way they figured out by the time he was already walking in anyway. And he would have still been disappointed when his caddy was telling him. And then people might have spun in the reverse way. It's like, oh, you're going to kick him out of a tournament and you got to get his caddy to tell him that he's kicked out. (laughs) Yeah, it's I think it's a shame it had to be public, but it had to be public. I, I, I didn't really see any other way around it. I think the interesting thing for me, though, is that what this does for Ram, right, because the isolation takes him what a day or two before the US Open. So obviously there were, there was a there's a bit less golf. There's obviously the prize money which was seven figures that he's now lost out on. Um yeah, it's uh he would have been number 1 as well. He would have claimed the number 1 spot, which is obviously important in that sense. So yeah. it feels like he's been unfortunate. He's he's always had some really good placings in major tournaments, etc. This is really unfortunate, but do you think it's going to massively affect his open chances with that kind of little bit less golf because he was clearly playing pretty pretty perfectly actually at that i point. don't think so because um, but here's the thing right too seemingly he's not vaccinated you got a question not for this to become some sort of political debate over vaccination policies but you do have to question as a professional golfer as to why when vaccinations are ve- readily available in the united states seemingly most pga golfers are vaccinated you have to question a little bit as to why he isn't. Yeah, I was going to actually ask the rules. If you are vaccinated, do they even still test you at that point? So that's the thing is, so I might be getting this. Inter- so I read the statement that came out of the whoever, the person in charge of their health policy. And she she was kind of explaining the fact that he'd had this contact case on the Monday and that the protocols as a result of that were that you have to be tested on a daily basis. They, he, they were asked if he had been vaccinated. She said that the PGA has the same approach as the CDC, which is that in order to be classified as being fully vaccinated, you have had to have had both doses and had a 14-day period after that second dose. And But if you're not fully vaccinated, so she said she wouldn't comment on whether or not on John Rahm's vaccination uh, status because that was a personal matter, but then said, but if you are... Uh, if you are not fully vaccinated, then if you have a contact case, you have to be tested on a daily basis. So that kind of confirms that he's not fully vaccinated because he had to be tested on a daily basis. And also confirms had he been vaccinated, he probably would have been not withdrawn. He would have been fine because they wouldn't wouldn't have tested him. Yep. Yeah. Then you know what? Then at that point, I don't know how sorry I feel for him. I mean, I'm sure there might be situations where he couldn't have gotten vaccinated or other issues maybe 
but from the sounds of it, had you just gotten the vaccination, you have can skip all of these requirements and probably not yeah. get kicked out. Yeah. yeah. It does raise an interesting point about whether sports associations and sport bodies should be making it mandatory to have the full vaccination as well. Eventually, oh, Sam, as we Sam, get move on, move on. Let's not get into this controversy. <laughs> no, I think it's good. We The first segment, we will have really pissed off PETA. And then the second segment, we can really <laughs> piss off Republicans. <laughs> we can we can just keep moving through the groups. I guess if we were going to try and piss off someone else, we could talk about Ollie Robinson in the cricket with the. Oh, um, we can go. Then we can skew really liberal, and then that way we can just no one will know where we stand. So, <laughs> or yeah, we can we, defend his tweets. Why don't we move? So on this to I have it. not heard. Okay. Uh, so, I saw I saw it, but I I didn't read what what had happened. So, complete change of sport here, obviously. But Ollie Robinson, who is in is a cricketer, who was called up to play for the England team in the Test match against New Zealand for his first cap, and then something that's obviously not unusual. But when someone gains a little bit of fame they previously didn't have, people look through social media accounts to see what dirt is hanging out there. What skeletons do you have in your closet? And people searched through his accounts and didn't have to search too hard by the looks of things. And he had a series of racist and sexist and just inappropriate tweets from when he was 18 years old. So from nine, 10 years ago. And this broke, I think it broke on the day of the opening day of the test match. It was the morning. Yeah. And so then there was the debate as to what they were going to do with him. They said that he would play pending an investigation it's made more difficult, right, by at the time the England team was sort of is heavily promoting the idea of sort of anti-hate, anti-racism, anti-sexism, as are a lot of sports teams and or sports organizations, right? So they're all wearing T-shirts and various other slogans trying to promote unity. And after the test match was con- concluded, it was announced that he would be suspended pending the conclusion of the uh, investigation and now seemingly he's the final decision, right? Is that he's been, I mean, he's now out of the England squad and there's a whole backlash as to whether there's a camp that says he shouldn't be punished for something he did 10 years ago. And that every, Hey, he was only 18. Yes. He should have known better, but at the same time he was only 18. And then other people who are thinking that there are consequences for everything that you do and that at 18, you should probably, to give you a context of what some of these tweets were like, he tweeted, uh, I wonder if Asian people put smileys like this. And then obviously with just the two, um, to, to imitate Asian people's eyes, so like, should we say squinting? Uh, then he also again. This is not the tweets of the Big Chill podcast. No, <laughs> this is. Then he tweeted, "Not going to lie, a lot of girls need to learn the art of class." Hashtag get some. He also, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they don't. Oh, even that is not a good look. He that tweeted, is "Not a good look." My new fr- my new Muslim friend is the bomb. Hashtag way. Um, oh god! Wait, is that really a hashtag? <laughs> <laughs> he created it. And then females who play video games actually tend to have more sex and be happier with their relationships than the girls who don't. 
this one doesn't seem as controversial, but obviously in the context of some of the other ones, not that I'm saying it's a good tweet, but if he just had that get, one. Why do people tweet these things? I don't get it. Well, that's, that's the point here, right? Should you be punished for when you did something at a more immature part of your life a decade later? Um, you know, he obviously knows now that anything kind of racist or sexist or homophobic is bad. He's apologized immediately. Does he? Does he? Or well, does he? Or does he just not post it because he's famous now? Okay, well, <laughs> and has to apologize because you have to apologize. Yes. So obviously, of course, he's got to apologize. But I'm not sure where I sit with this because obviously, I think that kind of your action should have consequences, and it's come down the line and done that. But I think what you I think what he should be doing is going out there and preaching the issues to younger cricketers now of saying like, these are the problems, you know, use your social media responsibly, use it carefully and become like a bit of an ambassador for social media usage because of this exact scenario. Because I do think there's a way of almost like not repenting, it's too religious, but giving back to maybe the problems of the past. I, I'm just not sure the suspension seems a bit harsh, especially in light of it i I don't know for me i think it's a little bit harsh um so i i agree with you that there should never there shouldn't be a a death sentence for his international cricket career and that there should be an he should be able to show what he did he no longer represents his true character and that he knows it was wrong he obviously can't do that between now and the second test so the question then is should there be consequences for doing something that's clearly inappropriate and and even at 18 you should know better my bigger point is almost like he, he deserves to be dropped just for being dumb enough to still have a Twitter account where you know that this exists. The fact that he hasn't wiped it clean when he became a professional cricketer, the fact that he's that stupid, that he deserves to have his international career cut short for that reason alone. And the, I think the kind of elephant in the room in some respects is he's a 27 year old who's talented, but if it came out that James Anderson or Joe Root or Ben Stokes had some of these tweets hanging out there, I doubt that they get suspended. But because he is, you know, he won't be missed that much. And there will be other players who come in to take the spot. I think it's easy. And that's the thing is, which we've touched on before, right? We've discussed the Colin Kaepernick issues and stuff on here. Sometimes it's not just whether or not you necessarily want to be involved in the debate. It's, is the player who you are then going to bring into your camp and is going to gen- generate all of that controversy and debate, are they worth that level of attention? So is Ollie Robinson such a key figure that England think he is going to take so many wickets in the next test match that it is worth having every media discussion that they have and because even during this test match, right, they were interpreting what's the body language like on the field? How much is he being used? Is Joe Root going to speak to him? You know, all, everything. That's going to continue. And is he worth it? Probably not. Yeah, I mean, I think that... I know what you're saying from an organizational standpoint. It's a bad way to look at it, I think, from a society standpoint, where it's like, is it worth kind of criticizing this person and making sure this person understands their wrongs and to right their wrongs based on whether it's worth having them on the the pitch or not. They should regardless, you know, trying, 
the England cricket team, regardless of how good that player is, should be making all the efforts necessary to kind of write this person and make an example of them, regardless of whether they're going to make an impact or not. Right. But you are right in the sense that that's how the organization will most likely handle it. I mean, they're always going to have their interests in heart, whether they say they are or they're not. But for an overall society, that's probably not the best approach. You know, it should, I think whether he plays again or not, they should make a pretty good example of this. And like Sam said, maybe try and have him go out into the community and talk to younger kids and tell them, you know, like, how to act appropriately and how to use social media in a positive way, not in a negative way. Yeah. His apology wasn't that great either. It has to be said. It was, it was out of the like apology 101 handbook where it is first, just say that you apologize to anyone that you might've offended. Don't really admit the fact that it is offensive at its core. It's that you potentially may have offended people. And then, State step two, talk about how at that time you were a different person going through a difficult period, but now you've turned things around and you are very different now. So he has very much distanced, not even just I have matured. He has made it out that he was struggling at the time. So you definitely mm. shouldn't be judged because it was a difficult period in his life. And as everyone knows, when you're really struggling, you like attacking Asians and Muslims and women. Yeah, it's not a good look. Hashtag way. <laughs> I still don't get the hashtag. Well, it's <laughs> hashtag. Gets Is it some. an English thing? Am I yeah. missing something? Yeah, it's like yeah. When, it's an English say thing. if someone like falls over in sports, you yeah. would make that kind of noise like way. Or like when someone shoots, Got it. shoots a mile wide, and then he has a crowd. You're like way. It's that. It's that concept. Got it. So just going back to the golf slightly. Um, one thing we didn't touch on is the DeChambeau Brooks Kepka feud that I am happy will not die um, and may go on for the rest of their careers. So this week at the Memorial Tournament, DeChambeau said he was being heavily heckled by fans with chants of "Hey Brooksy" during the first two rounds of his of his tournament, and he said he didn't have an issue with being heckled. It was that they were apparently doing it during his backswing during when he was trying to focus and at points that are crucial for a golfer to be in the zone and not be bothered. He then came out and said that he thinks it's something that the tour needs to handle. It's something he can't control. He's tried to take the high road numerous times and thinks that from his perspective, it'll continue to keep doing so and people are going to do what they want to do. So he is kind of informally, which probably behind the scenes, very formally, calling out the tour to fix this feud that's happening because no one likes him and people are taking Kefka's side and kind of berating him. So do you guys think this is fair or that he has the right to complain? And what do you think? I think he's got the right to complain and I don't like him very much, but I understand where he's coming from. And I think there, even if you are going to heckle someone or kind of, I say abuse, but not in the true sense of the word, but as, you know, targeted comments on a golf course or in any sporting venue that are acceptable, right? We're not talking about anything 
mean or inappropriate if he's just getting having Brooksy yelled at him. I think there's still a time and a place, and yeah, in in golf on someone's backswing, that isn't it. So I agree with him in that respect. That yeah, give him the abuse, but maybe choose when and where you do it. But I don't know how the PGA can really crack down on it. I also don't know if commenting on it is the best thing. I think that will just encourage people to keep doing it. Whereas maybe it would have just run its course in a tournament or two and everyone would have got bored of it. And we spoke not long ago, right, about the Colin Montgomery and the amount of abuse he got in the U.S. Fundamentally, once you have just become the target of the crowd, I don't think that will ever go away. Like Colin Montgomery never managed to ditch it. People hated him in America, and there was nothing he could do about it. And DeChambeau yeah. might be just in a situation where there's nothing he can do about it either. And, and you're doing exactly what he said is the worst thing you can do is then calling it out. So you're making it known that it affects you. That's the worst move you could possibly do in that situation. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like say, say he goes to a Ryder Cup in Europe in a couple of years. That that's it. That's the target, and that will always be the target now with him. But I don't know. I think a Ryder Cup isn't his biggest issue. I think I'm his just biggest issue. Any scenario no, no, I get it. But I think his bigger issue is in the U.S. with American crowds. I think that's going to be much. I think he'll get sarcastic comments and taunts from a European crowd in the Ryder Cup. But I think in terms of people in his downswing, just because I think the crowd would turn on people in the Ryder Cup scenario where they felt like you were almost cheating by trying to sort of disturb an opponent, if you see what I mean. Whereas in this, where it's just like, well, we all hate Bryson, right? So this is fine. Like it's just him by himself and we all hate him. So and we don't really care. He's, he's seven shots off the lead. So why don't we just ruin his round anyway? Maybe he just has to play play with earplugs. I don't know. Don't know if you I don't know if that's considered like a teaching aid in golf. I don't know if that's even allowed. Could you do but, like active noise cancellation headphones and you just drown out <laughs> the crowds? Yeah. Like is there That'd be interesting. I don't know if you're actually allowed to do that. But I'm gonna guess with the way that the rules of golf are so metic- meticulous, I'm gonna assume it's not allowed. But can have anything covering over the ear. Probably some really weird rule. <laughs> I mean, the tour can just easily come out and say that they have things in place for that, like repeat offenders are thrown out or something like that around the tee. They can obviously track, you know, where people are, where they move to, etc. But I don't know what having having of- just Googled it. Uh, it's there is no rule against it supposedly. Official search engine headphones or. However, like music headphones or or earplugs. So you could wear earplugs, but any device or sound that helps with the, your tempo and timing is illegal. So you couldn't have music because I guess they would argue that you could you can use, have white noise. Like, do it to the beat. Like noise cancel. You can just do noise cancel. Yeah. Or just earplugs. Yeah. yeah. Like Tor approved earplugs. Yeah. So that- that should oh, be his God, thing. Then now. you would just get ripped on for wearing earplugs. Yeah, but they look stupid. <laughs> Anything that's, he does. No, but that's the trade-off. They look ridiculous. <laughs> so just have, he's just, just have got like, like those big, massive headphones on. Like, like mufflers. Like the, no, he'll just yeah, have, like he'll, have uh, he'll have plugs by Bry. <laughs> <laughs> plugs by Bry is pretty good. 
both ear and anal. Great. How's that helping him? But yeah, to the you know the Epsom Derby and the Epsom Oaks, both of which produced two fairly emphatic winners, particularly in the case of the Oaks, both of which produced two fairly unexpected winners, particularly in the case of the Derby. I, I in a way, I almost don't... It's difficult to pay too much attention to the Derby because the storyline there is basically a favorite that sort of flopped. And I I think it's difficult. I... I it, it was a type of race where I don't even know if we can read too much into it. I'm not sure that a kind of class horse has come out of it. Whereas obviously Snowfall's performance in the Oaks and winning by 16 lengths is just so taking that the question there really is how good is Snowfall? Yeah, it was super impressive. I mean, even Frankie Dettori said it was a struggle to even pull the horse up at the end that it just kept going and going, you know, it's, yeah, it is. It was a very, very impressive win, and I am interested to see where they're going to target if they're eventually going to the Arc this year. Um, and it's kind of that O'Brien issue: is he's going to have multiple horses this year again going to the Arc, and is he going to try and play his cards strategically and you know lay out Snowfall maybe for next year and not this year? It'll be interesting to see, like with the whole love debate from last year. Yeah, I mean, seemingly the next target is the Irish Oaks next month, based on what O'Brien has said. Um, I'm just always, and this seems unfair on the horse, there's just a degree of skepticism with me that this just seems very much what Coolmore does, and that they have this huge stable of immensely talented horses, and that every once in a while, one of them comes out and produces this incredibly taking performance and then we almost never hear from it again like if you ask me which is more likely snowfall never wins another race or snowfall wins three more group ones i would pick the never wins another race it's typical o'brien isn't it look at bolshoi ballet as well like that horse was meant to be this incredible talent lo and behold turns up at the derby the thing with the derby is it's starting to not be a race where you've got to consider favorites that much anymore. Like when you look at like the recent results, they've been pretty unpredictable, but something I took from it was obviously hurricane lane had a good run at the end. And it kind of showed that Charlie Appleby's got a couple of good three-year-olds there. Um, obviously with the winner, Adea and, um, hurricane and hurricane lane. lane lost both of its front shoes as well in the race. So yeah. there's slight excuses there. But I always feel like that that's one of those excuses that gets trotted out whenever a horse loses by like I think a few lengths. It's just, oh, oh, it lost a shoe in running. I They came out and said that Bolshoi Ballet came in sore as well because of a bump at the start. And you I've rewatched that race and the if there's a bump, it's a, the tiniest of scrapes with another horse. It's well, it's nothing. Even then they they have to that might be an excuse for two or three lengths, but then they need to find an excuse for the next 10. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I looked at some of like the ratings, uh, like kind of time form wise, time wise, because I remember trying to unpack that serpentine win and last year and trying to think to myself like, okay, was it just quicker? Was there problems? And a day just goes slap bang in the middle of it all again. It was a pretty quick Derby win. 
uh, time form rating puts it kind of slap in the middle of like the past 10 winners. Um, it, it just kind of comes across as a run of the mill derby win where the people, where the main players at the top of the betting underperformed. That's kind of how it feels. Yeah. I, I mean, I think similar to your point, to me, it's not even that the race is turning into one where you can't trust favorites. It's just turning into a race where I'm not sure it kind of means much anymore in the sense that it's not producing class winners. So the thing that makes a great race, A, yes, you want competitive races, but you want superstar horses to come out of it. So, you know, something like the Ark, say, take for example, which is obviously a good comparison with the Derby in terms of distances and then the types of horses that run in it at times. You know with the Ark that most of the time, the winner of the Ark, you know, sort of out of 10 runnings of the Ark, seven or eight of them are top-class horses. Whereas the Derby now, you're, you're struggling to pick out horses that have won it that are top-class horses. And to me, that could be this. Yeah. It could become less significant on the calendar just because you start to feel as if, well, it's it's not significant if you win it because it doesn't really, it's not an indication that this horse is going to go on to great things. Yeah, let, let me run down the last seven or eight winners you tell me. So a day are this year. Serpentine last year. Nope. Anthony Van Dyke the year before. Mediocre. Mazar. Mazar the year before. No. Wings of Eagles the year before that. Harzand or Harzand. Okay, Harzand. Like, but if, if Harzand were sort of one of the worst winners of recent times, you'd feel good about it. But the fact that this is a, probably the best you've named so if, far, it's not great. If you no. go a couple more before that, though, you're getting to Golden Horn and Camelot. And then yeah. you would start Golden saying, Horn like, yes. and then Australia. Yeah, Golden but, Horn, but Australia, Camelot. But like, well, you're six years ago now. Yeah. Yeah. Golden Horn, right. six years. Ruler of the world, Camelot. Yeah. That was a great period. Workforce, yeah. an Eddie favorite. Yeah, my favorite horse. See ever. the stars, new approach. I mean, those are cla- that now that is what's class what's horses. What's really there. interesting is a lot of those horses you mentioned, like See the Stars, New Approach, um, they're now siring and uh, like daming all these horses now as well. So you're starting to see that blood of those come through. So it would be interesting to see the um, the importance of that kind of blood lineage coming through to see which is good. Because obviously a Dayar is a sire of Frankel. So a lot of people are obviously saying, you know, first derby win. Clearly the pedigree might be there for the distance as well. Um, but I, I think I agree with you, Eddie. Like, I let's be honest here. The derby is like, one of the oldest races is always going to have the prestige of a three-year-old that could potentially throw up incredible talent. And it's clearly a very special race, but you do start thinking to yourself, like the eclipse, the King George in July, and you start thinking, well, hang on. They've, they've been more recently like tussles. Like there's been two horses, three horses that go there with the intention of being like arc favorites, arc runners, have you seen that in the Derby for the last six years? No, there was a lot of like unpredictability about, okay, a serpentine, a real deal or something like that. But have we seen it in the last six years? No. Have we seen it in other races? Certainly. Yes. And, 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 and like we discussed in, in a section, I guess that was never in the end, never published, but you know, yes, these were two very good performances and that's great. Uh, but 
to me, that only becomes meaningful if they are followed up by other good performances from those horses. Because otherwise, because horse racing, as I said, as we discussed, like it just needs superstars for me. And part of needing, that's part of what drives it. You know, if you look in the UK, there has never been a greater level of public attention for horse racing in my lifetime than when Frankel was dominating races. Now you could argue that those were the least interesting races in many respects that you're ever going to watch because you were watching a lot of the times one horse just demolish the rest of the field. It wasn't a compelling race from the stand. You weren't watching some ding dong battle between two horses coming up the, up the straight. You were just watching, Oh look, Frankel's pulled six lengths clear race over. Wow. Amazing. Incredible performances. But I mean, there was a genuine sort of Frankel fever. You need, if you want to drive, and you could even in, you know, in jumps racing, you could say like the impact that Tiger Roll has on, you know, there's a lot more people who kind of pay attention to the Tiger Roll's performances than would just pay attention to a horse winning the Grand National and then never reappearing. And my fear is that the Derby and a lot of these, it's just, you need a superstar horse to come out of it at some point, And it's just not at the moment. Yeah, that's probably, I mean, you're, you're hitting the, the nail around the head there with one of the main issues with horse racing is it's not a popular enough sport that you can have several main actors. You know, if you have four or five good horses that are just battling out against each other, you're probably losing the potential fans versus if you have one superstar that everyone can just focus on because people aren't paying enough attention on a day-to-day basis for horse racing. They're paying attention to those big four or five races, if that, a year. So like same thing in America, no one cares if you have one horse wins the, the Kentucky Derby and the other horse wins the Preakness, who's going to win the Belmont. No one cares at that point anymore. It's if you have that one horse that wins the first two is he going to win the third? You know, they want that one standout horse because they don't have the the focus or the time to watch multiple races. So I think you're right. I think the sport does even suffer a little bit, even if maybe four or five great horses are better than one amazing horse for the everyday fan that might be better, but for the common, not everyday fan, it's, it's, you're losing, you're definitely losing coverage for sure. And you probably need two. You know, it's like it's like heavyweight boxing, right? If you really want it to be popular, you need two great champions simultaneously. Like, that's what really drives the interest. So, you know, it is great in situations where there are two very good horses on the scene running over the same distances, but you definitely need one. Yeah. yeah. And even looking back also to had the to... period with Frankel, there was still many soap operas going on kind of around that um so you had like the camphor cliff story and then with camphor cliff you had the golda cova story and the queen anne and then you had all of these great little kind of i think even workforce was maybe only a year or two before all these horses as well from the cecil yard so you had all these great horses in a short period of time that ran against each other so even though frankel was on its own it still had incredible soap opera styles like when will they meet where's going to be the clash that they go together that i think horse racing is missing at the moment but who knows a day are i I know that appleby came out and said that the king george looks like the next target so if it wins the king george then we may have a little star on our hands but uh yeah overall a pretty weird derby to watch but um Let's see yeah. if we find a star from it. And it's worth saying, right, if you've enjoyed this bit of horse coverage, we'll be doing a day-by-day preview of Royal Ascot next week, including for day one, we're going to have Scott Ferguson on to to look ahead to the 
a little bit the festival as, as a whole, but but also mainly for that day one, so that each race gets a little bit of attention and we're able to, to put some suggestions out there, which based on our performances over the course of the year, you'd be you'd be up if you were listening to us. Quite significant, really. So hopefully we can continue that through uh, what I would say is our most important week of horse racing out there. And St. Mark's Basilica, if you want to talk about French racing, won the French Derby on Sunday. So another impressive display from an O'Brien horse. And yeah. potentially an art contender if the weather is is good. I think uh, O'Brien basically dismissed the possibility of it running in the arc if the ground was remotely soft, but which is likely. But if if we had a sort of Indian summer in in France, then there's a possibility it could be appearing at, at Longchamp in, in early October. Shaking your head, but going going back to that point, um, we're talking about kind of horses potential really good races when you look at the summer of racing you start to see the entries for the eclipse at the start of july and it's an incredible field when you actually look at what's just gone on you've got mishriff st mark's basilica lord north snowfall love palace pier bolshoi ballet mohafeth we didn't see and they're all at the kind of the top 10 of the betting and if you start to see even like four of them you might already be going for a race that's got more quality than a derby you just saw with the three-year-old kind of it could be really good and so um I, I look forward to kind of the horse racing stories that could come out over the next couple of months before the arc yep any other uh, sporting topics from the weekend yeah actually i had i don't know if either of you saw this is a pretty interesting story of the russian tennis player yana sizakova I don't know if either of you heard about this, but she was arrested in Paris for match match fixing on last year's French Open. So for those who haven't heard, there was tens of thousands of euros that were like abnormally placed at a random point in their match. And it turned out that all this money came in on the fifth game of the second set of Sizakova's doubles match with her American partner, Madison Brangle in like the second round of the French open doubles tournament. She was serving that game and she double faulted three times and was broken to love <laughs> at the same time that going from betting maybe a couple hundred in, in the random game of that second set to betting tens of thousands were placed throughout various bookmakers. So they waited until the following year, I guess, till she came back to Paris and arrested her. That's the thing I never get about this, this like sort of spot match fixing is, you know, you're going to get caught there. The, the, the irregular betting patterns are always going to get you caught. Especially on such an unknown match where the markets are going to be so varied. I mean, obviously, you're not going to find Djokovic matches. And small. Yeah, it's small stakes to move that, especially in play and live. What I would have been unfortunate is, like, would the doubles partner have been on in, in on it? Like, that would have been unfortunate if, like, caught up in match fixing and you had no idea, or you could feign that you had Oh, no I'm sure idea. she wasn't. You have to assume, based on the fact that she wasn't also arrested. It's not like, we'll just get one of you. That will be enough. <laughs> Yeah. You'd be so furious watching your partner just double fault to love. 
And yeah, and that's the thing is it seems like such a specific part of that match that she likely wasn't involved in it and had no idea and just thought she had a a bad game, you know, in a random set. Oh, that, you know, yeah, that fifth game, just shake it off. You know, you just, you weren't, your head wasn't right. Shake it off. Not that you were fixing a match for tens of thousands of euros. Well, hey, maybe Roger Federer was fixing it. Maybe you got people were just laying his uh, French Open outright odds consistently, and maybe they're throwing it in a double. The Osaka laying the Osaka Federer French Open chances, and realized that he might have a chance, and decided to withdraw. So this news is essentially that Federer's withdrawing from the French Open because of this knee injury or recurring kind of knee problem he's got. Does this get to the point now where he's just kind of kind of freeze himself for Wimbledon well he doesn't year. normally play in the French Open he normally no. sit now he's it's been a while since he's even competed so normally he rests he sits out the clay court season and waits for the the grass season to come along but in this instance because obviously the disrupted tennis calendar decided that he would come back to sort of help himself get into the form he wanted for Wimbledon then his knee has bothered him so I think it's it makes sense what he's done um and also he wouldn't have he wouldn't have been favorite to win in the next round anyway. So I do get why he's done it, but it is a bit of a shame that you just kind of miss out on on one of the later stages of the tournament. There's just a, a match where it's just a walkover. All right. I'll talk to you boys later then. See ya. Cheerio.